0: Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's show, a quick reminder that this podcast is free for everyone and supported by those who can afford it. So uh, if you have found this podcast a useful companion during 2020, and you'd like to see it continue through 2021, I would invite you to go to plantyourself.com slash gift. If you are in a position where you have the means to support something that means something to you and hopefully uh, you think is doing good in the world. You can use PayPal or Patreon. You can make a one-time contribution or become an ongoing sustaining patron of the show. And if funds are too tight for you to show your appreciation in a monetary sense, you can still leave a review of the Plant Yourself podcast on whatever platform you listen to the podcast. That also helps us a great deal. All right, on to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com, the Big Change program and Well Start Health. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a clear and courageous life. Today's guest is Dr. Aisha Sherzai, who is half of Team Sherzai, along with her husband Dean, who is also an MD, and they're the co-directors of Brain Health and Alzheimer's Prevention at Loma Linda University Medical Center. They're also the authors of a fabulous book, The Alzheimer's Solution, a breakthrough program to prevent and reverse the symptoms of cognitive decline at every age. And unlike a lot of authors and researchers on brain health who are still in love with the uh, you know, fatty fish and fish oil and strange supplements. The eyes are completely evidence-based and therefore they are completely plant-based in their recommendations about what we should eat in order to be healthy. However, nutrition is only one of five things that they talk about. They have an acronym neuro and the N stands for nutrition, and the others E, U, R, and O represent other things like exercise, etc. And so this is a very holistic look and how we can stay cognitively fit for our entire lives. Now, I love the way they write. I loved hearing them first on the Rich Roll podcast. If you haven't heard that episode, that might be a good introduction. And I'll include a link in the show notes for this episode, which is plantyourself.com slash 279. One of the reasons that I love their work is that cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's actually turn out to be more motivating for people to change their lifestyles than things like diabetes, stroke, heart disease, cancer. There's some research that shows that people fear dementia more than they fear death. The idea that their self would disappear while their body lingers, that they would be a burden on others, that they would engage in potentially embarrassing and harmful behaviors and activities. All this really can motivate people to pay attention to changing their lifestyles for the better. And the Eyes are not only experts in brain health, they're also experts in behavior change. And in our conversation, I got a couple of tidbits from Aisha that I'm finding incredibly helpful in my own work with with clients. Before we get to the interview, just one brief item of business, which is Wellstart Health slash Big Change Program is offering a new cohort Starting in the beginning of August, starting on August 6th, actually. If you already know about Wellstart and Big Change program and you just want to get signed up, you can do that right now. You can go to wellstarthealth.com slash apply where you can take five minutes or so to fill out an application. And then we'll get back to you and let you know whether we think it's going to, you're going to be a good fit for the program. Or if you'd like to learn more, Josh Lajani and I are holding a webinar. A week from today, so that would be July 24th, it'll be 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.30 Central, and it will be recorded. And the topic is the three high hurdles to weight loss and health. Now that we've coached literally hundreds of people, some of them for up to two years now, we have a real sense of what stops people on their journey to changing their lifestyles and getting healthy? What stops people from adopting healthy diets? What stops people from building and maintaining and growing their exercise regimens? What stops people from developing the mindsets that will see them through when life gets stressful? We've identified the three biggest ones, the ones that in our estimation stop about 97% of people who don't learn how to address them. And the webinar is really an introduction to our Big Change Well Start Health methodology. It's also a lot of useful information. This is not going to be a sales pitch. This is simply a way for us to share some of what we know so that you can decide if we're credible, so you can decide if our personalities and our approach would be a good fit. If you're interested in this webinar, please sign up right away because by tomorrow, we're going to be advertising this on Facebook, which we haven't done before. And I'm guessing given the amount of traffic that comes to plant-based and health and weight loss sites that we will get a lot of takers. So consider this my way of lifting up the red velvet rope for Plant Yourself listeners to make sure that you can get in on this if you want to. How do you get it? you go to plantyourself.com slash now. So that's just all lowercase, N-O-W, plantyourself.com slash now, and that will take you over to the page on WellStart. There's a video at the top, four-minute video, and then there's a bunch of text, and at the bottom of that page is a place where you sign up. You can just put in name, email, click submit. You know how to do that by now. And that will reserve your seat for the webinar. All right. So that's the end of the business I got. So let's get down to the business of brain health. So without further ado, Aisha Sherzai, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Howard. I'm really excited to be here.
0: I'm so looking forward to talking to you. I, I listened to you and your husband, Dean, on the Rich Roll podcast. Gosh, it must have been six or seven or months ago at this point. And I remember thinking as I was listening, boy, I would love to talk to them. And it, it was a two-hour interview. And I kept thinking, boy, what am I going to talk to them about that they haven't already discussed? And we just we just got on the the, the Skype and he said, De- Dean is called away in an emergency. So I'm hoping that we can have a conversation that that goes into specifically the, the, the amazing work you're doing on getting people to actually change their habits and behaviors. Um, but first, I guess, let's, let's start with, um, you know, the, the book and, and your work. Can you first just sort of in, introduce yourself and, and Dean by proxy and let us know what, what you work on?
1: Sure, sure. No, thank you. Thank you for having me and uh, thank you for everything you're doing. It's it's incredible and I'm so glad that we're connected. So um, so I'm a neurologist uh, by, um, by training. I trained in um, preventive medicine and neurology. I did my residency in prevention because of my passion for understanding how to prevent diseases of the brain and neurology at Loma Linda University and I um, I did a fellowship, a two-year fellowship at Columbia University in New York, where I did my research on specifically nutrition and brain health and stroke and Alzheimer's disease prevention. And currently, I'm the co-director of the Brain Health and Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Loma Linda University. And along with my husband, Dean, we implement a lifestyle intervention program for individuals who are concerned about their brain health and who have the beginnings of memory decline. Um, with them through uh, implementing lifestyle changes. Dean is also a neurologist and he has, um, he has a prevention background and a healthcare leadership. So I think with his skills of, you know, from healthcare leadership and management and behavioral neurology and my skills in particular uh, aspects of neuro, which is nutrition and lifestyle, uh, we, we've been able to create this uh, lifestyle intervention program. And I also actually, during my fellowship at Columbia, um, I went to cooking school and I learned how to cook. So I have a degree in culinary arts just because it was so important for me to know how to make a healthy meal, a plant-based healthy meal for for my patients. Because at the end of the day, it was so sad to to see that all I could do was just push aspirin and cholesterol pills. Uh, I think it's bigger than that. It's all about prevention.
0: Yeah, now you've you've used the word prevention, like as you were describing your education and your training and your your work, like eight or nine times, <laughs> and like pre- I hadn't heard of preventive neurology. Like, where did that come from? Because it's not it's not something that I hear bandied about a lot. <laughs> well,
1: many ways we created it. Um, there is no particular field as preventive neurology, but we created it, and and that's. Based on you know decades of work and seeing um, the devastation. That brain diseases cause. Let's take one of them as an example: uh, Alzheimer's disease. Um, you know, we we are now completely overwhelmed by this disease. It's a tsunami. Um, there are more than 4.3 million people in the United States suffering from this devastating disease, um, and uh, it's projected to increase uh, significantly in the coming years. And after decades of research and focus on false models and billions and billions of dollars spent there is no cure for it but we now know and we've known for for a very long time from wonderful population studies that the disease or the the you know the pathology actually manifests decades earlier. So we start having the problems about 10 to 20 years earlier before it physically manifests. And if you live a healthy lifestyle, you actually prevent it completely. And we've said this in our book, The Alzheimer's Solution, you know, um, our publisher, um, they said, you know, give us something really catchy to put on the cover <laughs> of of the book, and we said, well, based on our research and based on everything that we've read, you know, Alzheimer's disease can be prevented in ninety percent of individuals within their lifestyle, and they boom just picked that line up and put it on the cover of the book, and it's true um, because. There, you know, when you look at um, uh, certain populations, like say, for example, the Adventists or um, people living in the blue zones, they never develop, or they, you know, seldom develop cognitive diseases. They live a very uh, vibrant, cognitively vibrant life until very um, late years and. Uh, You know, memory loss is never a concern. And when you look at their lifestyle pattern, it's the way they eat. They move on a regular basis. They are, you know, not under a lot of stress. They manage their stress well. So all of these things matter. And so it's all about prevention. And that's what we're focusing on.
0: Hmm. So I want to come back to something you just said about the 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 symptoms the pathology manifests years before it physically manifests. So are we are we, is what's happening that the research paradigm is stuck in a materialistic way of looking at it? Like you know the way I think of like the heart and the cardiovascular system is sort of like, you know, a pump with tubes, like, you know, my HVAC system. So if the the air conditioning isn't going off in one of the rooms, I assume there's An obstruction or like you could you could look and see as opposed to like if my computer isn't malfunctioning, I would have no way of like looking at like prying off the cover, looking at the circuit boards and going, oh, there's the problem. Is 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 that metaphor at all useful in in helping understand like why brain health might be different in terms of seeing problems versus other other body systems?
1: In many ways, yes. In many ways, yes. Um, And that has to do with this incredible resilience of the brain. Um, You know, the brain is only about three pounds, um, and it's about 2% of our body weight, but at any moment it consumes 25% of the body's energy, so it's constantly working really hard and it's quite resilient. But at the same time, it's one of the most susceptible organs um, of the body as well. It's resilient because we can actually change the, the very structure of the brain. We can make connections by living a healthy lifestyle. Um, I think one of the things that we get wrong as individuals is we feel that the brain is completely separate from the rest of the body and it functions in a completely separate way. It doesn't. It has the same vessels, it has the same lymphatics like the heart or any other organ of the body, but it's but because of the constant assault on our brain whether it's nutrition, whether it's lack of sleep and stress, it's always, you know, trying to get rid of all that junk and the toxic byproducts that it's it's been exposed to. But then after a while, it starts giving up. Um, you know, for other diseases or for other symptoms, let's say, for example, heart disease or blood pressure, we have medication that controls the symptoms. But the brain Functions in a completely different way, and once you start seeing these pathologies, and you know the way we've described it, uh, pathologies that are result that are as a result of oxidation or dysregulation and metabolism of glucose or fats and inflammation, it starts giving up, and it doesn't really manifest as you know pain or any um, you know alarming symptoms. It can be as subtle as just you know, not feeling well, not being energetic, having a mental fog, or having some memory problems, not really relying on your memory for your daily activities and start, you know, starting to rely more on a calendar, things like that. So those are the subtle manifestations of cognitive decline. And um, they've done autopsy studies in people with a large amount of vascular diseases, people who have diabetes, heart, uh, heart disease, and cholesterol. And when you look at their brain, those same pathological processes have actually started long, long time ago. So um, th- the, way, the way our work is changing perspective in patients is we say, Im- just assume that your brain is under a lot of stress and start taking care of yourself before any of these pathological processes take over and they manifest themselves. So live a very healthy lifestyle, even though you're not having any symptoms. You know, one of the very... Um, common questions that I get in the clinic is, but isn't this a genetic disease? If I have the genes I'm going to develop and there's really not, nothing that I can do about it. And we say, well, all of us have, you know, different genes. All diseases are genetic, but Alzheimer's, only about 3% of Alzheimer's disease is purely genetic. And there are specific genes, um, one presenilin-1, presenilin two and APP. If you have those genes, you're going to develop it, uh, Alzheimer's disease no matter what. Within a couple, you know, within a range of years. But lifestyle even affects that. Say, for example, if you have those genes, uh, you probably may develop the disease in your early sixties. But if you live a very, very healthy life, you can actually push it by ten years. You know, you'll you'll probably develop it in in your seventies. But for the rest of the 95% of population who develop Alzheimer's disease, there's no one particular gene. When you look at the gene patterns, there are genes for um, fighting against inflammation. There are genes that are fighting against immune responses. There are genes that are responsible for removing toxic byproducts in the brain. So if we live a healthy lifestyle and never put our brain through all that stress, those genes are not going to get activated, and we're never going to develop those pathological processes or Alzheimer's disease, for that matter.
0: Mm. So, as I was reading in the book, I was getting a little bit lost with all the all the genetic stuff. You know, yeah. trying try, trying to keep track of it, um, but it's not my field. But I always wonder when I hear about genes that you know that can cause problems. Is there a flip side? to those genes, so the presenilins and the APOE4, A- A- that under normal circumstances, that they would have some advantage in the, way, in the way that like, you know, there's like cystic fibrosis genes that are also anti-malarial, like, like you know what I'm asking? Are there, are there potential benefits to those genetic variations that we see as particularly problematic for, for dementia and Alzheimer's?
1: Yes, so so it it depends on what kind of ApoE genotype you have. The ApoE genotype is a little um, uh, tricky. So the 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 type of ApoE uh, gene that puts you at a higher proclivity for developing Alzheimer's disease is ApoE4. But then um, there are other copies. So there are three types of ApoE gene. There's ApoE2, ApoE3, and ApoE4. Each one of us um, have two copies of these genes, and the combination determines our ApoE genotype. So, for example, you could have ApoE2-2 or 2-3 or 2-4, um, and the combination, you know, determines your risk. ApoE2 is protective. So, if you have two copies of that, your well-protected. But ApoE4 puts you at a higher risk. And you know what's interesting? Um, The ApoE4 is actually responsible for transportation of fat across different tissues and cells. So one of the major functions of ApoE4 is to transfer fat and lipids. Um, And compared to ApoE2, it it does a rather poor job of it. And that's why, you know, there's this huge... um, literature, uh, supportive evidence that cholesterol metabolism dysregulation in the brain can actually induce the beginnings of Alzheimer's disease.
0: Uh-huh. So, yeah. so, so but is, is there some sort of compensatory benefit? If you had an ApoE4 and you were eating a normal human diet that was, you know, low in saturated fat and, uh, you, you know, a sort of a, a whole food plant-based diet. Right. Would there, like, the fact that you're, that's, that something's a little bit lazy, could that, could that mean you have more energy for something else? Like, I was trying to figure out, like, is, is it just bad luck that we have certain genes, or is it just sort of bad luck that we have these genes in combination with an environment?
1: Well, there are. There's really not much we can do about our genes, but you know what is interesting that even in people who have the ApoE4, two, say two copies of the ApoE4 alleles, 50% of them don't ever develop Alzheimer's disease, and and that's because. So so why is it that even when we have the high genetic risk, we don't clinically manifest the disease? And it's again, it's because of lifestyle. Lifestyle trumps genes, and those who don't develop dementia, despite their genetic risk, actually have better lifestyle and less health outcomes like diabetes. They don't have high blood pressure, and they don't have high cholesterol. That's why it's so important to manage these lifestyle risk factors.
0: Right. So I think my my favorite line in the whole book was that lifestyle is an off-label treatment for cognitive decline. Absolutely. Absolutely, Because right. and- right. I, I love that so much. Because when I think of off-label, I think of like greedy drug companies <laughs> who, who are who are trying to push sales without having to go through more, you know, FD, FDA clinical tr- approved clinical trials. But like to the, the irony of that, that you, you know, you're kind of saying that the same stuff that works on everything else also works for brain health, and actually can be much more profound when it comes to the brain.
1: Oh absolutely, absolutely. Usually off-label is used for, you know, certain, um, you know, slightly supportive uh, uh, aspects of lifestyle for other diseases. But let me tell you about how important that is for Alzheimer's disease. Um, You know, for the past two to three decades, you know, billions of dollars spent, Pfizer, you name all the pharmaceutical companies that have done research. And you know what the success rate has been as far as coming up with cure for Alzheimer's disease? Zero. We don't have a single medication. As a matter of fact, a couple of months ago, Pfizer withdrew their entire Alzheimer's disease research branch. They said, we quit. We don't want to work at it. And you know that the model is wrong if, you know, a company like that withdraws their research from the field of Alzheimer's disease, period. And they said that they they actually don't know whether they're going to start doing research on clinical trials of, you know, creating uh, treatments for Alzheimer's disease. But when you look at the lifestyle, you just, um, by combination of, of all the lifestyle risk factors, we had the finger study or the Finnish geriatric study. The, um, it was published in Lancet uh, earlier in 2014. You know, a combination of nutrition and exercise and stress management and cognitive activity reduced the risk of Alzheimer's disease who were at very, very high risk for it. We have studies from the Adventist Health Study back in the 1990s, Dr. Paul Gim. He saw that people who actually less ate less uh, meat, who are vegetarians in the Adventist population, they had fifty percent reduced risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. So half the risk. And then you have studies uh, from Rush University where the Mind Diet, just diet only. Uh, Mind Diet is the hybrid of Mediterranean and Dash Diet, which is low in salt, which is you know essentially a plant. I'll, I'll tell you about Mediterranean diet later. By you know adhering to a Mind Diet people reduced their risk of developing Alzheimer's disease by 53%, and all the other lifestyle risk factors, exercise and stress, and everything was adjusted for it. And you know, the good thing about that study was that even people who moderately adhered to that diet had 35% reduced risk of developing <laughs> Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. I, did a, I did a research um, at California teacher study, 144,000 women followed for you know uh, almost two decades. And we measured adherence to Mediterranean diet. And I was intrigued to find out what Mediterranean is because a lot of people say Mediterranean and they think of wine and cheese and pasta and it's not like that. And when you do factor analysis and statistical modeling to find out what foods stand out, it's actually the, vegeta- the vegetables. It's the plant-based components that stand out. It's the greens, beans, berries, plant foods and not the olive oil, not the fish and definitely not the poultry. And we what we saw was incredible. We saw that higher adherence reduced risk of stroke and vascular dementia. But um, for every increase in the score, in the adherence score of the Mediterranean diet, the stroke risk and Alzheimer's disease risk reduced as well. So it was not an all or none phenomenon. It was every incremental step towards a better diet actually made a difference. And that, I think, is quite empowering for people. Um, So so there's there's so much more going
0: Yeah. So, I mean, so when I hear that, I think, okay, well, you know, we have those same studies for heart disease, those same numbers that you quoted for for diabetes. And yet, because we have meds that that can deal with the symptoms, nobody's interested in talking about, you know, (laughs) lifestyle medicine for for these chronic diseases, but because we have, like, it's almost like there's a blessing in this 0% success rate in dealing with dementia that all of a sudden these numbers become interesting to people who otherwise wouldn't be interested in them because uh, there is no, you know, drug money that can be made from, uh, from successfully treating dementia.
1: I agree. Um, and I think it's our fault. And by, by that, I mean, you know, the medical community, um, doctors. Let me tell you this, you know, I went to medical school. I went to incredible institutions for training and never ever did I have a single class or a lecture about the importance of lifestyle in disease prevention. I I can't remember. And I've talked to a lot of medical students. And if you look at doctors, four years of medical school, four or five years of residency, and then another you know, few years for fellowship if they want to super specialize in their field. And you never hear about prevention. We're all tr- trained in a way where we um, take care of patients when they're sick. So it's a, essentially a sick care system. I don't know why we call it a healthcare system. Um, and so we go into this field, uh, basically trained to give pills, treat, do surgeries, and that's basically it. And I think the conversation and the narrative is changing because we look at the entire spectrum of the disease, starting in the community, at people's homes, in their lives, and then sick care is a very small part of it. And what we're trying to do, Dean and I in the clinic, is we make it our responsibility to reduce the number of medication that people are on by slowly and gradually moving that, using medication as a bridge. Don't get me wrong. I am all for medication if if it's needed. But using it as a bridge to push people towards a healthy lifestyle,
0: right? And and one of the things that I loved about learning about your clinic and your work is that you you guys decided at a certain point to become lifestyle medicine professionals. And that you know, I I know a lot of you know, sort of plant based doctors who are still pretty like their training, their professional training is in Western uh, you know treatments. And they're sort of, you know, uh, lifestyle amateurs, like they watched Forks Over Knives and changed their, you know, or they read the China study. And I think, you know, ACLM and other organizations are working to bridge that gap. But, you know, you, you guys really struck me as taking it so seriously that are like, we, we have to be as professional at lifestyle as we were in, you know, these decades of training of, of pills and procedures.
1: Yeah, you know, I we 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 were in the field. Uh, well, just being in the field of neurology and dealing with um, the diseases that we take care of, you know, Alzheimer's disease and stroke. It's depressing, Howard. After a while, you see that all you're doing is basically passing around nursing home brochures to people and telling them to brace themselves for the for the trauma and the devastation that is ahead. Um, I was at UCSD, as you may have read in the book, um, and I was getting my master's in clinical research. This is in between medical school and residency, and Dean was getting his fellowship in um, dementia. And we were working with you know, world class scientists and day in and day out in the clinic, day in and day out in the research facility, I was actually working with um, a neurologist who was doing functional MRI studies on people who had family um, history of Alzheimer's disease. So these were younger individuals and we would bring them in. We would look at their brain and tell them what their risks were for developing Alzheimer's disease and almost all be ready for it. And in the clinic, same thing. People would come in with their loved ones. You would see the apprehension. You would see the fear. You would see the tears. Incredible human beings, professors coming in with memory loss. And all we would say is like, I'm sorry, you have Alzheimer's disease. Um, This is going to get worse. There is no treatment for it. You may need to get connected with this organization for caregivers. And that's basically it. There are about two medications for symptom management that work for six months in only about 50% of the population. It was depressing. And so that pain actually made us start looking around. There has to be something else. Because we were actually on our path to be trained um, as clinical researchers to look into the research that has been done over and over again, focusing on one molecule. Look at amyloid molecule, see how you can remove amyloid from the brain. And see if that results in in any improvement. But we now know that that's a false model. And by the way, um, if anybody says that they can reverse Alzheimer's disease, that's absolutely false. Once the brain has reached that that point where amyloid or that protein that has been associated with Alzheimer's disease has damaged a lot of nerve cells and neurons, there's no coming back. So. And that's when we started reading about the blue zone concept, and we looked at epidemiological studies, we looked at Colin Campbell's work, we looked at Dr. Esselstyn's work, and we looked at Loma Linda, where they have the seven-day Adventist population and the Adventist health study, and there was hope, and we wanted to be in that field, and that's why. We were even told by some of our mentors at UCSD, um, Mm -hmm. God bless their soul, that if you go into this route of lifestyle, that's career suicide. You will never ever get a grant for from the American Heart Association or the Alzheimer's Association, and it's true they don't really support something as comprehensive as that. But you know what? That was the best risk we took because there's so much hope in this field.
0: Right. Um, so, and, you know, I mean, one of the, one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading you know, when you talk about like brain resilience and this idea of reserve and, you know, these networks that we can create and, you know, how how non-material it is compared to, you know, say, heart and lungs. And I understand that there's all this vascularization in the brain. It, it, it is ultimately, you know, a piece of meat just like everything else. But when I, when I look at like the difference between, uh, you know, penicillin, to treat infections and, say, the psychiatric drugs, which, yeah. as I look at, I, you know, I see sort of the same thing, this, this desire to create materiality, to say, oh, well, it must be the serotonin, it must be the dopamine, and we can go in and to see, you know, that pretty much no, there's no antidepressant that's better than placebo, and, to see, you know, the antipsychotic drugs are incredibly addictive and, and can be harmful. Like, the idea that we can go into the brain And and with our human hubris, figure out exactly how to, you know, how to tweak it, like a mechanic, you know, tuning up an engine. Um, It just seems extremely unlikely that, you know, within the next hundred years or so, we'll have anything approaching that level of sophistication.
1: Well, I am... I'm a very optimistic person as far as that area is concerned. I think we've made a lot of strides in the field of technology and artificial intelligence. And I think we're getting closer and closer to understand the mechanics of the brain. And yeah, sometimes it seems very, uh, (laughs) it's almost, uh, seems very unsophisticated to understand how simple the process can be. Um, but I think the beauty of that is, um, the, the manifestation of, of this change that the brain goes, grows, uh, goes through, uh, during lifestyle. Um, uh, we always look at the brain as, you know, something magical. I, I started by saying that, but when you look at how it functions, it's just incredible. Um, you know, neurons or brain cells can make as little as two connections with each other, uh, to communicate and transfer information or as many as 20 or 30,000 connections. And, these connections are built and broken on a regular basis, even well into our 50s, 60s, 70s and beyond. And there is this notion that you know, after a certain point the brain doesn't grow, but we now know we actually have the tools and the procedures to determine the constant growing nature, the plasticity of the brain. Um, and let me, let me tell you a story. Um, I think you probably may have read it in the book, but the research that was done on the London taxi drivers, um, you know, the London taxi drivers apparently go through this grueling experience of memorizing the streets in London, and they have to take a test to be licensed as uh, cab drivers. And, um, one of the universities in, in London, they did a research project to look at the before and after of these cabbies going through these tests. And uh, after the test, for those who passed the test, they actually tested their memory scores and they looked at their brains. Their hippocampi, which are the areas of the brain that are responsible for memory encoding, had grown significantly and were continuously growing. And their cognitive tests had improved. And compared to those who didn't take the test, who were on constant decline, it was just incredible. So you know it is growing, it is changing, and we are understanding that concept very well. The concept of brain resilience and cognitive reserve—that this is something that we can work on—and that's why it's important for people to understand that it doesn't take a magical pill to build resilience. It's that brain bank account that you start putting money in um, in your you know twenties, thirties, forties, and that seems to to help later on in life.
0: Right, and I think by, by understanding. I think we're, you know, we're, we're talking about both like appreciating what the brain can do, but, and, but, but also like where, where I'm saying we're, we're not getting anywhere is if, if we start thinking that our under, that we understand a certain neural pathway or a neurotransmitter and we can create the equivalent of a pill. And, you know, in the book, you talk about like, you know, Sudoku and crossword puzzles and tangrams are fine, but they're not real life brain engagement that involves facial recognition and social cues and logic. And, you know, so in, in thinking about like how we go about treating the brain, if the like what I'm coming to is that lifestyle is is so much more complex and organic than anything that we can artificially create, whether it's a pill or whether it's, you know, hooking someone up to electrodes um, and just you know sort of feeding them a some some sort of systematic uh intervention as opposed to just sort of messy life itself
1: you 're absolutely right no you 're absolutely right um and i think it 's the the concept of reductionism in every field that has um uh, basically propelled that, that concept. Um, you know, we, we think of the magic pill or the vitamin concoction or the brain game, but the brain doesn't work like that. Just like you said, it's more complex. We need a very comprehensive multifaceted approach. And that's why, you know, um, real life activities or real life, um, situations seem to, uh, seem to, uh, be more beneficial. And when you look at specific areas of the brain, they don't work alone. It works in synergy and in harmony with the rest of the brain. And, and that's how, that's how you should, and that's how we all should approach brain health. All
0: right. So let's, let's talk briefly about your, the, the five letter acronym neuro um, so, so we can kind of lay a foundation for people. I found it incredibly helpful and and also humbling. That when as I was reading the book, like, oh, I'm doing, you know, I was doing really, really good until I got to uh, R, <laughs> like, or you know, then I was like, oh dear, like I got some work to do. So let's let's go through that, and then we maybe we can we can get into how we can actually help people adopt these behaviors.
1: Sure. Sure. So we came up with this acronym, neuro, like neurology, and stands for nutrition. Um, E stands for exercise. U stands for unwind or stress management. R is restorative sleep. And O is for optimizing cognitive activities, but in the context of social activities, like like we discussed earlier. Um, And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a cute acronym. um, But essentially, it's based on all the evidence that we've had from many many decades regarding lifestyle and regarding brain specifically and each one of them may vary for person to person like yourself you know you said you're you need to work more on the r aspect of it there are people that need to work more on nutrition and exercise but it can't be one or the other it has to be all of them at the same time all
0: right okay so so let's let's go through each one and, and one of the things when i when i was listening to to you and Dean on the Rich Roll podcast as I was going through an airport and I stopped at the airport bookstore and they had like two books on diet and dementia or diet and Alzheimer's. Neither one was yours. Uh, And so I looked at it and, of course, you know, I'm I'm guessing you can predict what they were telling people to eat. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, So, you know, like fish was the big thing. But, you know, make sure you get lots of fats for the brain and and protein. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like what are they seeing and what are you seeing? Um, that's, that's so, that's so different.
1: There's a lot of clutter and noise out there as far as nutrition is concerned. And I think, um, the, the concept of confirmation bias is very per- pervasive. People start with a notion that something, sh- you know, they, they're comfortable with and they look for evidence that supports that fact. And nowadays you put any two terms together on Google and you will find some sort of a relationship for each one of them, you know, say, <laughs> um, you know, soccer shoes and aluminum and, or, you know, headaches and I don't know, um, your blueberry level. So it, it's, it's, it's sad to see that because. We, Dean and I, we work in the trenches, we work with patients, um, and we see the pain and the devastation that they go through. And for us, it's very personal. It really becomes very personal because we had two grandparents who suffered from it. We saw how it aged our parents. We saw how the grandchildren were affected by it. Our grandparents were incredible human beings, and they become like they became like children. They lost parts of themselves. Um, and then you see the, our lovely patients who go through this day in and day out and the pain that they suffer. And so it kind of makes us, you know, very upset. Um, as far as diet is concerned, um, you know, you hear a lot about paleo and ketogenic and fish and all that. But the data is very clear, really. There is no, there's no conflict. Um, you look at population studies. You even look at, you know, clinical trials it's uh, plants that seem to be quite protective. And that's why in our book, we wanted to emphasize that a whole food plant-based diet is the best diet for the brain. Um, the Mediterranean diet studies, when they, when they do them, it's not the olive oil, it's definitely not the fish. It's the greens and the beans and the berries that stand out. Um, you know, uh, there, there was a time when uh, people were fighting about fats. You know, saturated fats are not bad. We even had it on the cover of Time magazine that butter is back, bacon is back. Butter was never back. Bacon will never be back. Um, from, from you know all the studies that we we have encountered and from our own studies at Loma Linda universities, again and again, over and over again, plant-based diet seems to be protective. So why is there so much noise? And why is it that people who are selling some vitamin concoctions are winning? I guess it's because of desperation and because of just the very nature of our society, you know, if you have a lot of Instagram followers, and if you seem to be a journalist with access to social media and to TV, (laughs) you get a lot of, you get a lot of sound bites. And people who do real research, they usually don't. We have fabulous researchers and physicians like Dr. David Katz, you know, he came with his book, Disease Proof. And in that book, he talks about how 80% of diseases can be prevented with three things: food exercise and smoking, or lack thereof. Um, And specifically for food, you know, you have, we have so much data that shows that plants are good. So, you know, about fish and about olive oil and about meat, those are, you know, confirmation biases. But I'm actually happy to say that for the first time, just a couple of weeks ago, um, three people actually came to a consensus, three very unlikely individuals, and I don't know if you read that, Howard, but there was a consensus paper from Harvard University on saturated fats, or fats in general, and disease. And people like um, Tobes, and Gary Tobes, and uh, Ronald Krauss and Walter Willett from Harvard University, who were um, not in agreement as far as fat was concerned, they actually agreed that saturated fats that are derived from, a- from animals are bad for cardiovascular disease, for brain health, for diabetes, and so on and so forth, for all chronic disease of the aging. and. Unsaturated fats, which are derived from, from plants, think, you know, nuts and seeds and avocados and maybe small amounts of extra virgin olive oil, are actually beneficial. So there, I think the most beautiful thing about science is its true humility. You've got a lot of false humility out there, but the true humility of science is this statement. To the best of our knowledge today, and that's what we can go with, and the evidence shows that a plant-based diet is protective.
0: Huh. No, I hadn't have, I hadn't seen that bit of good news. I guess my my uh, Google feed is optimized for neg- negativity. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: okay.
0: I must have a good news filter that I have to turn off.
1: No, I'll I'll definitely send you that paper. It was incredible. And that that is, you know, that takes care of a lot of um the the noise out there.
0: Huh. I'm 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 really excited to see that. So so um you mentioned David Katz and you mentioned uh Esselston. So I just saw a I don't know if you saw this uh, An article And I think David Katz wrote From LinkedIn um, It seemed like Sort of obliquely Critiquing Esselston's Take on olive oil mm-hmm. um, And so like, I don't want to get too far Into the weeds But it's yeah. I think it's, it's an example And I noticed In your recipes You have You know Half a teaspoon A tablespoon Of extra virgin olive oil Um and and also you you know you you mentioned earlier that you see a a beneficial effect on health from incremental changes. Yes. Yeah. So is it like um, and just you know just to say what well, I think what, what David Katz was saying was that that Esselstyn Dr. Esselstyn's categorical statement that all oils are bad may have been based on a reductionist study um and that that extra virgin olive oil may be protective although it's not such a big deal but i'm wondering is like like would you did you decide to include olive oil in the recipes to because you think it's protective or because you think it will help people make incremental changes and that you know that without it it, it would be harder for them to to enjoy their food
1: right um the latter um we believe in progress um the all or none phenomenon all, or the you know either you do this or you're doomed uh picture never works in healthcare um, and with the with the kind of population that we work with who are devastated with vascular diseases like diabetes and you know heart disease and so on and so forth um, the transition is very difficult. We added olive oil to make it easier and to make it more palatable for them. Um, I, I, I'm familiar with Dr. Katz's um, article, um, the one that you just mentioned, and I think he clearly states that, you know, the ultimate, uh, ultimately the, the most optimal diet is a diet that is high in vegetables, a plant-based diet. Um, is that diet better with olive oil? No. There is no evidence that addition of olive oil makes um, an optimal, you know, plant-based diet better. But does it make it worse? It depends. So if somebody actually has um, say, for example, high cholesterol or at some cellular level, some inflammation, the addition of that extra virgin olive oil may actually make, make the diet less optimal. And that person may benefit from the lack of any kind of polyunsaturated or extracted oils. Um, but, you know, like I said, um, we believe that no oil is better than any oil when you look at the most optimal diet. But again, it's okay to add a little bit of olive oil if you have pristine coronary arteries and if you have no cholesterol issues and if you're healthy and all the other aspects of neuro. And that's what we go by. Um, in people who have mild cognitive impairment in our clinic, we actually try to put them on the least amount of extracted plant oils. And definitely not coconut oil and palm oil because, you know, it's one of the few plant oils that are very, very high in saturated fats. And it's actually detrimental for the right. brain health.
0: Gotcha. So some, before we get back to the, the, the euro of neuro, um, yes. you, you 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 wrote… In the book, the, like the medicine is moving to a place of personalization and, I- and and your work is clearly based on that. And we'll get into kind of how you coach people. I love, you know, all the stories about, OK, this person needs a recumbent bicycle to watch television. This person needs to start doing this. And and yet something like you talk about confirmation bias. I've gotten into lots of arguments with like local, like, you know, um, Sort of holistic practitioners who uh-huh. have swallowed the bioindividuality <laughs> thing, and and they use that to say, well, some people need lots of meat, and some people should have, you know, and so I when, when I hear like personalized medicine, some of my hackles immediately go up because I think someone's trying to say that well, there's you know, we're basically every one of us is basically a different species, but I think you're, you're saying something different from that. Can you help help me navigate? the truth of personalized medicine versus, you know, taking it to an extreme?
1: Um, I I hear you. I see that in our clinic all the time. Um, I think the concept of personalization in our program focuses on um, habit formation and maintaining a healthy lifestyle. Uh, Personalization uh, and bringing the concept of reductionism in each and every field of neuro— is is baseless because you know the only thing that we can go by is data and if data in a large population shows that certain foods are good for you and others are bad then we have no other choice but to stick to that. You can't really go by anecdotes. You know, if somebody's uncle had steak and potatoes all his life and smoked two packs a day but lived, you know, well into his nineties and had no cognitive decline, he just got lucky and he had you know, probably some good genes. But we can't use that individual as an example to move forward, and you know, for people who actually dwell into you know the minutia of diet and adding this and that and checking their you know whatever it may be their profile, there really isn't no, is no there is no evidence for it. Um, I've heard people say that you know personalized diet is the next step, um, but that's not how it works because, as you may know. The concept of synergy in the field of nutrition is ubiquitous. It's not one element that works alone. It's the combination of all of these things together. And Over and over again, I I sound like a broken record, um, the plant-based diet seems to be protective. Any addition of meat or, or some other vitamin or mineral may be baseless except for deficiency states, I have to say, for vitamins. Like, say, for example, if somebody comes in with vitamin D deficiency or vitamin B12 deficiency that could affect their health, it's very important to replace that. I think that's that's the level of personalization for that field. But, you know, we have to make sure that we stay within the perimeter of scientific evidence when we bring in the concept of personalization and diet.
0: Beautiful. I, I love that distinction. That you're basically talking about personalization of of the journey as opposed to the destination. Right. Agreed. Gotcha. All right. Can, can we uh, can we handle the exercise, unwind, restore, and optimize?
1: I can go through them real quickly. Right. I'm, I'm on a time crunch till 10 o'clock, but uh, is it okay if I just... Uh-oh. Uh, Uh-oh. We oh, can oh, well,
0: well, you know what? In that In that case, let's let people read the book. And I would just love to hear from you. Like, what have you learned about how to get people to change. Because on page six of the book, you're right, you've become masters of midlife behavior change in people who are unenthusiastic about changing anything. And, you know, as I've uh, co-founded a startup where I'm now going out into employer populations and, and speaking to employees, they haven't come to me. So it seems like we're we're now talking to the same group of people. And I would love to learn what you have learned about how you get people to begin to to want to make these changes and to sustain them once they do,
1: absolutely. Um, I think I think the science of building habits is the cornerstone of our program. Um, what we provide in our program is different in so many ways. Um, obviously, it's based on science, but it's centered on a well-established behavioral modification program that um, helps people change their course towards a healthy living in their own time with their own intrinsic uh, motivational processes. And if we don't take habit building in, in a proactive, intentional manner, we're basically left with uh, the patterns of habit that were laid down during you know our early years uh, when our immediate physical needs or our insecurities and fears were the driving force behind any behavior. Uh, and so... In many ways, we're actually um, helping people unlearn a lot of things that they had learned during their lives and build very uh, solid habits moving forward. And here is where the concept of personalization comes forth, full force. Uh, We have to understand where the person is. We have to understand their resources, their limitations, their desires. And one of the most important things that we um, try to help them create for themselves is a purpose. It's so funny because we were writing this book, Dean and I, and, you know, we were heavily driven by science and looking at PubMed and all the papers that we had written. But it became more and more of a purpose-driven life kind of a situation where, you know, at the end of the book, we realized that none of this matters if people don't have a vision and a mission and a goal to move towards. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a huge goal like I'm going to help save the oceans or I'm going to help save the orchids. It can be as simple as I just don't want to forget things. I want to wake up and feel phenomenal every single day. Um, and and so, so we want to pull that out of people and understand where their purpose is and work it backwards towards all, you know, looking at all of the elements that they have and then adding one small thing on a regular basis to help them towards that purpose or a goal. And we understand completely the importance of incremental steps. People actually take on way too much or they make a completely false goals for themselves, and that's why they keep failing. Uh, Dean calls it the nuclear uh, minefield. You know, sometimes we as physicians are the worst when it gives to creating hope for people. At the door, the doctor tells patients, you know what, you need to eat well and you need to exercise. But not giving them those steps or understanding how that works for them makes the person lose hope completely and never reconsider Going back to that field at all, so you know um, we look at each and every element in people's life, whether it's nutrition, whether it's stress. We actually find out when these habits were laid. Most of the time, it's our you know during our teens, teenage years, when uh, you know all of these needs were driven by um, or the, these habits were driven by our needs, and we break that autopilot uh, situation. Um, most of our lives is in autopilot mode through our habits, and it's impossible to get rid of habit driven behaviors because that's just how the brain works. And when you look at the brain, you know, the higher cortical part of the brain requires a lot more energy, but the habits are located in the basal ganglia, which is a low energy state of the brain, and it's very easy for us to repeat habits over and over again. So it's like cutting those. Those uh, uh, behaviors and those pathways in the basal ganglia and recreating new ones and allowing people to take time to recreate this. And I think it's been one of the most satisfying experiences ever, looking at people coming in with bad habits and slowly and gradually building um, new ones moving forward.
0: Mm. And I, ima- I imagine it's very empowering for people to hear from brain scientists. This is why you have bad habits. It's not. It's 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 how your brain is wired. It's how your experience is, rather than there's something wrong with you.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And to tell them that, um, you know, motivation is. Is such a misnomer. I mean, what is motivation? People say I'm not motivated to uh, to move forward. Uh, we we actually use the SMART goal uh, techniques, and we show them the different stages of of habit or behavior change, whether it's contemplation and preparation, uh, maintenance, and so on and so forth. And we try to find out where they are. And you know, a lot of people say I'm not motivated. But motivation is when you have small successes in your path, and you associated those successes with an emotion. I like it. I love it. I feel good. That's motivation. So, unless we create small successes in any realm, there is no motivation. And um, yeah, it's it's wonderful to actually see people develop that definition for themselves
0: in, in our program. Mm. And just, I know you have to go, but just one, one thing I was noticing is I've, I've shared your book with a bunch of people especially you know a, a friend of mine who have i've been trying to help him get off of sugar for yeah. years maybe a decade and i know that when he reads your book he's going to get off of sugar because he cares more about not having dementia than about anything else and i wonder if you find that i don't know if you can compare to other other motivations or other fields but it feels like People really, really don't want to get Alzheimer's, even more so than they don't want to get cancer or heart disease or diabetes or or, or other physical afflictions.
1: It's interesting. You said that they did a survey a few years ago and they found out that people are scared of Alzheimer's and dementia more than they're scared of death. And I get it. And, you know, we see that um, they're one of the most motivated people to work with because at the end of the day, we are our brain we are our emotions our emotions reside in our brain and you know you can replace any other organ from the body cardiologists don't like that they get upset with us when we say so but you know you can replace the heart you can replace the kidney you can even replace the 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 liver but you can never replace the brain the minute you do that you replace the person so it is the most important organ in ever of our body and once you start taking care of your brain you've taken care of the rest of the body because your motivation, your emotions,
0: your memories make up who you are. Oh, this is beautiful. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm, um, I have another hour's worth of questions for you. I know you got to go. Um, <laughs>
1: well, we'll get together again. I, I, I love this. Uh, uh, thank you. So you have such such a great population and you do great work and I appreciate being here. But it's fascinating, isn't
0: it? Oh, it is. And uh, I'm glad I have you on tape saying that we can do this again. So (laughs) I'll hold that that over you. I look forward to, to meeting Dean. And Dr. Aisha Serzai, thank you so much for the work you do for your book. Tell us the book again and tell us your websites for people who want to find out more.
1: It's my pleasure. Our book is called The Alzheimer's Solution, and you can get it from teamshareseye.com And I have to add something. All the profits of the book go to our non-for-profit organization called the Healthy Minds Initiative that Dean and I created, basically helping disperse information, the right information, science-based information to different communities about brain health, prevention, and living a long, healthy life
0: beautiful we didn 't even touch on the work you 've done in San Bernardino and the all the um, the social outreach you 've done um, a lot of that 's in the book, also a lot of that I recommend everyone listen to you guys on rich roll podcast and i 'll include a link to that as well um, it's, it's It just puts a smile on my face to know that there are folks like you out in the world doing this work and we're we 're locked arm in arm trying to spread the message of, of, of health and potential and purpose. So thank, thank you. Thank you so much for all you do. It's Team Scherzai. It's T-E-A-M-S-H-E-R-Z-A-I.com.
1: It's my pleasure, Howard. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Right. Be well. So, dear listener, what did you take away from that conversation? I am definitely going to work on my R on restorative sleep. Of course, I read the book in addition to having this conversation. So if you haven't read the book, I definitely recommend that you get it. It's a great book to give to other people as well. The Alzheimer's Solution by Dean and Aisha Sherzai. Now, if you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and you'd like to support our mission, there's a bunch of ways to do that. You can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. You can become a patron at plantyourself.com. Just click on the right sidebar where it says Patreon and you can become a monthly contributor to help this thing keep going. You can also spread the word about WellStart Health and the Big Change Program. So if you know folks whom you think would benefit, you can send them to wellstarthealth.com And you can also let them know about the webinar, The Three High Hurdles to Weight Loss and Health, which they can register for, same as you, at plantyourself.com slash now, N-O-W. If you're looking for the show notes to this episode with links to all the stuff we talked about, you can get that at plantyourself.com slash 279. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 278 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com including a couple that are related to this episode in that they focus on sleep and sleep health. And they are with my buddy Emerson Wickwire. So if you just do a search for the word Emerson at plantyourself.com in the search bar at the top right, you'll find those episodes and they will be very relevant to all of this stuff about brain health. So the garden is now producing a flurry of both blueberries and elderberries. The blueberries, I'm not very good at picking because of my Dutan's color blindness. So my wife and son do the heavy lifting there. My job is to put them in plastic bags for the freezer and make them into food. The elderberries are far less straightforward in that uh, when they're ripe, they, we just cut off the big umble the uh, looks like the umbrella-like lacy structure that uh, holds all the teeny little berries. Stick that in the freezer in a bag, and then when it's frozen, the berries fall off. And then we turn that into tinctures and medicines, which is to say my wife turns it into tinctures and medicines. We also got this very, very cool vining spinach with uh, leaves that are not so tasty raw, but they're slightly steamed. They're very, very delicious. I'm not sure exactly what it's called, what the uh, species and genus is, but uh, it's delicious and it's very prolific and it's something that the rabbits and groundhogs and deer don't seem to be interested in yet, or at least they haven't found it. So in running news, this past weekend I rolled my ankle pretty badly at an Ultimate Frisbee practice, so I'm holding my breath, hoping that it heals in time for nationals. I'll probably still go to Chicago, even if I'm not playing or not playing that much, but I hope to be uh, to be all healed, they had a lot of, uh, of ice and elevation and rest and compression and all that other stuff. And hopefully uh, my plant-based diet will help me with a, a speedy and full recovery there. All right, cue the music. Cue Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace by Will Ridenour. You can find more of Will's music at willridenour.com. It's a perfect intro to this podcast, and I love how it floats underneath my gratitudes when I name all the people who have become patrons, who have uh, helped out, who have been generous and supported this mission, as in... Kim Harrison, Lynn McCloud, Anthony Distant, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mary, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Havely, Mary Jean Wheeler, Alan Kelly, Mr. Coble, Mitchell Barris, Mr. Nelson, Gina, Sharp, Tina Jan Dean David Byzik, The Mysterious Michelle, Excel's Mustel, Victoria Dolmanova, Leah Strollo, Adam Christensen, and Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Julian Rollins, Duanola, Sarah Circus, Dirkus Rezn, Circus Kelly, Cameron Wayne, Patterson, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Tom Frances Jeanette Benning, Gillis, Sarah David Daniel, Blair, Cyber Dronovizov, Joe and Carol Argentati, Jody Fries, Ruth and Thunderberg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Equally Mysterious Tracey Elschlemmer, Elly Schlemmer, Rebecca. Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rides with Cinnamon, Nick Carper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R, Susan Laverty, The Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharf, Karen Bury, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Dean Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plan, Plant, Happy Organ, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel Shell, Ruthless, Julian Watkins, Brito O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Janet Hirschman, Kate Rose Iyat, Julie Lang, Holm, Hedegaard, Isa Tuzun, Wakani, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lale, Heather O'Connor, Carroll, Jensen, Cherry, Orla... Sherry Olakowski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Mirani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle, and Jesse Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divott, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, and Laurie Fanny for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherly, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinoski, David Bizek, Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkas, Rhymes of Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, <laughs> hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gillis, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Daron Gio and Car- Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen. Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Nolly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, the panda vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly, Machia, D.N. Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kertzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Agardi Zatu Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Dan Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colin Harrison, Justin Divich, Ashra Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Lenny Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iconelli, Levy, Wallach, Rosamond Mackate, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Leenan, Patty Di Martino, Mike and Donna Cartz, Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunther Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Shell Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parang Ganchik, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, and Sarah Johnson.